Okay, I think we're ready for arguments in our second case, if counsel are ready to proceed. It's uh, Campbell v. A1A Arc of Dunn, LLC, uh, case number 23-58. And if the appellant's ready, we'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. May it please the court, my name is Julian Bradshaw. I am here on behalf of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. Um, I would like to reserve eight minutes for rebuttal. When the language of a statute is clear, the courts must give the statute its plain meaning. At issue here is the plain meaning of North Carolina General Statute 131D214. That is a confidentiality statute that is specifically addressing information that is obtained by the Department of Health and Human Services during an investigation or a survey of adult care homes. The department regulates adult care homes and as part of the licensure and regulation of these adult care homes conducts thousands of surveys as part of complaint investigations or annual phase surveys. During the surveys, the department conducts interviews and obtains information from personnel at the adult care homes and from witnesses that are willing to provide information during the investigation. That information is furnished to the department under the umbrella of confidentiality. When surveyors go out to these adult care homes, they inform any individual they speak to that the information that is about to be obtained will be kept confidential by the department. That confidentiality is based in 131D214 that covers confidentiality of information. The department licenses and regulates about 600 adult care homes. As I stated, there are thousands of surveys that are conducted by the department and the department during these investigations and surveys depends on individuals to come forward to provide information so that a meaningful survey can be conducted by the department. In the case at hand, the department went out to Art of Dunn, one of the adult care homes in North Carolina. The department went out based on a complaint investigation. When the department arrived, it conducted inspections of records and it talked to several individuals in the facility and outside of the facility in regard to an elopement of one of the residents. When the surveyors spoke with witnesses inside and outside of the facility, they informed these witnesses that the information that they were about to provide would be kept confidential. And, and that's what we're, that, that's kind of the crux of the issue here is the, the confidentiality of the identities uh, of, of the persons providing information. And I would like, Janet, if that's okay, I would like to just put the statute up for just a minute. Point out. Hold it down for a minute. I'm sorry. Okay. 
plain meaning of the language of the statute prohibits the department to disclose the names of any individuals that provide information to the department during these investigations. As you can see in 131B 214.3B, the name of anyone who has furnished information concerning a facility without that, uh, I'm sorry, the name of anyone who has furnished information concerning a facility without that person's consent. So what did DHHS, when the discovery request was made, did DHHS go to its witness and, and ask whether the witnesses would consent to their names being shared? We did not go to the witness after we received the discovery request. We so I, I agree with you that B talks about the names of the people, but I want to understand what the department's position is on the second part of that section, because presumably in situations, maybe the case at bar, but more generally, a plaintiff would not have the ability to get have the names to ask for consent. So if you're not asking for the names or you didn't ask for the names, how does that not just kind of obviate that part of the plainly written statute? When we conduct the investigation and, and go out to the facility, the surveyor that conducts the investigation will inform the individual that they're talking to that there is a confidentiality statute and that their information is protected. And if you look in the record, one of the first pages there, page 59, you'll see that the surveyor notes, they're handwritten notes from the surveyor, but the notes will have the word confidential, confidential written on the side. That means the surveyor informed the individual that they're talking to that the information is confidential and the, and the individual did not release or did not allow the release of their information. If they inform the, the surveyor that they don't care if their name is confidential, there would be a different note there. So, and I had trouble with the handwritten notes, but so explain to me a little bit more specifically what happens. Does the surveyor say this is confidential or does the survey say, surveyor say this is confidential unless there's a court order or unless you consent your name being shared? Because the consent goes to the name not section A where you need a court order, right? Correct. The surveyor informs the individual that, it's, that the information provided and their personal information is confidential. There's nothing signed at that moment, but they're informed it's confidential. And if an individual expresses that they do not care if their information is confidential, there would be a note that would indicate that but they aren't told that they can decide to release their names. I mean, they have to, the witness has to know to say to the surveyor, I don't need my name kept confidential. Is that the department's position? That's the department's position that, that we inform of the confidentiality, but we do not provide any agreement that's signed that would say this is binding or you can release your information. So the only situation in which the department would be authorized under this statute, under section B, subsection B, the department's position is the only time when that kind of disclosure would be authorized is if the witness during, or the, well, let's call them, the person during the surveyor's initial interviewer knows to and says, I consent to you sharing my name. Correct. The, the department does not have the manpower to keep a database of every individual that they talk to with 
exact contact information. So in, in this case, when you look at the surveyor notes, as you said, it's hard to read the surveyor notes because the handwritten there later typed up in, in, into a typed version that is much easier to read. On page 95, you will see the note in regard, uh, page 95 of the record, you will see the note in regard to the individual that, uh, that plaintiff is trying to obtain a name for. It's redacted at this point, but there's only a name there. There's no contact information like a phone number or an address or anything else. So the surveyor would not have obtained that kind of information in that kind of detail. What's obtained is a name and the statement and that is then used in the subsequent survey in the typed up version where the person is not referred to as to name or any other identifying information. Right, but I, I, I'm just struggling that so the crux of your argument is we should follow the plain, unambiguous language yes. of the statute. And I think the plain, I'm curious if it, the plain, part of that plain, ambiguous language is that there is a mechanism for disclosure. But I, what I'm sort of hearing is not practically speaking. How, how what is the practical, you know, uh, I feel like we're writing that part out of the plain language if there's not a practical means by which disclosure can be obtained. Right, there's, for the department, it is not practical to keep or create a database with exact information to be able to contact these individuals. And like I said, there are thousands of surveys. There are thousands of people that the surveyors speak to when they go out and conduct these surveys. And the department at this point does not have a policy in place to have a database that would have all these names because the statute is very clear that it does not allow for the disclosure and it does not allow for a court of competent jurisdiction to order this disclosure at this it, time. It does allow for disclosure as long as there's consent. From uh, the person. From the person. Right. And well, so it kind of leads to, to my question and, and sort of maybe forecasting um, the, the plan's argument here. You know, one of the arguments I think I see here is that is that, that really this statute is one of, of sort of limited application. That it really only applies, from it's the plaintiff's argument anyway, that, that it really only applies in this sort of during the course of the investigation, sort of point, pointing to that the, the first overarching piece of, of the statute. And, but, and what I'm hearing from, from your argument is that, that in practice, that's, it, it really is just kind of part and parcel of the investigation. What I'm hearing is that um, it, within the within the investigation, if somebody says, "Oh, you can you can use my name, you can you know, you can tell so and so about the the smoking in the stairwell or or whatever," and you tell them I said it, um, that 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 that's acceptable. But that once you get outside of the context of the inve in, in, inspection or investigation, there's you, you say there's no no mechanism for that. So. Are, are we not really just talking about the statute within this limited confine of what's happening within uh, DHHS's investigation? We're talking about obtaining this information during the survey, but the statute we contend applies even after the investigation is completed, applies to the information that was obtained while the survey was being conducted. That, that's how we would interpret the statute. And 
the department is not saying that this information cannot be obtained at all by a plaintiff. What the department is saying, we should not be the first source for this information. And in this case, the department was ordered to release the name of the witness that plaintiff was looking to obtain before defendant had even produced any records in discovery because the motion to compel we had, the motion to compel hearing we had, was combined for the defendant and for the department that only came in as a third party was not part of the lawsuit and is not part of that lawsuit. But, but isn't that the point of the statute that the, 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 the facility itself may not know the identity of the people that are they're actually reporting information about it to the department and there's probably a very good reason for that. But the facility would be able to provide essential records and information in it at the time when the department was ordered by the trial court to produce the names, no information had been provided that was meaningful to the plaintiff and to order the department to be the first stop for, for this type of information we say is prohibited by the statute because the statute is very clear that the department shall not disclose the name of anyone that furnishes information during the investigation. Without their consent? Without the consent. So how is, how is one to obtain consent if they can't identify, if, there, if there's no indication of the, the, yeah, the, the no, no record, no mechanism to even, to even get to that point? Yes, the surveyors do explain confidentiality as part of their speech before they obtain information and, and people do have an awareness at that point that their information is confidential and most people appreciate that confidentiality. People are less likely to speak with the surveyors if they feel their name and information is going to just be out there in right. public records. But the General Assembly created a mechanism for disclosure and we're bound to effectuate the words of the General Assembly. And so I think Judge Hampson's getting at, how, how, is that, how do we effectuate the words of the statute if there, what you're saying is there is no mechanism? That consent part, just pretend it doesn't exist. How do we reconcile what you want us to do is look at the plain language when it feels like as long as we move the, the comma or the period up until the, before the written consent? I don't think it just kind of exists out there that there's confidentiality. I think the, the witness is made keenly aware that this information is confidential based on statute and has an option to then say, I don't want my information to be confidential. I don't care if it's confidential. And those notes are taken by the surveyors. And that's why I pointed out, if you look at the record, page 59 is one of the pages, you will see on the side the, the notes from the surveyor confidential. And that means the person did not want their information to be released. I guess what, I guess the department's position would be that in the, in the, in the context of the investigation, the, the person's told this is confidential unless you consent to uh, the release of, uh, of your, uh, of your I identity. Um, you know, and then that, that sort of ends it as far as the department's concerned. Correct. If beyond then, that, that individual, that person, wants to, to come out and cooperate with a, you know, with a, with a case or, or go to the press or whatever, that's, that's completely up to them. Correct, because it's the person's own information. If, if they, they want to distribute it, they're free to do so, but we as the department cannot distribute it based on the statute. 
Can I ask a question about something that you brought up about it shouldn't be the department first disclosing? This gets to um, a question I have about our jurisdiction to hear this. I, I understand, well, I guess my question is, is there a reason you didn't file a PWC after the appellee pointed out the jurisdictional effect in the principal brief, or do you not agree that this is interlocutory and that there's a jurisdictional defect that needs to be addressed? Because I, I'm going to get to what, you know, other places this information can come from, but first I want to start there. Yes. It was a true oversight that the statement uh, for the grounds of appellate review was not included in, in the state's brief. Um, and we contend it is not interlocutory. This appeal is not because the department was never part of the original lawsuit, which is um, Campbell versus Ark of Dunn. We were only brought in by subpoena as a third party for the limited purpose of producing records and information to plaintiff. Once Judge Gilchrist ordered the department to produce these records, that concluded our involvement, the department's involvement in this case. It was a final order for us to produce information and records, and we are appealing that final order. Do you have a case on point for that? This idea that if you're only involved in a case as a third party and when there's a discovery order that that's a, a final order that's not interlocutory? I do not. Okay. So then moving to what you suggested, which is looking through the surveyor or the final report, the surveyor's notes were hard to read, but I identified one neighbor, I think, that either wasn't a resident or some kind of employee or contractor of the facility. I understand in that same discovery order that the trial court granted plaintiff's motion to compel discovery responses. So I guess my question is, is your issue that there's some, in theory, let me see how I want to say this, in theory, every name but that one neighbor could come out through the defendant's making available their employees in, in response to discovery requests. Is that right? Correct, because in this survey, 95% of who the surveyors talked to was employed or somehow associated with the facility. Was there anyone besides that one neighbor? Not as far as I know. Okay. We would contend that public policy concerns regarding the names of individuals that provide information, you know, they're large and, and they're huge on the radar of anyone that is providing information. And I know that Apelli had stated that the court has an inherent power to conduct their proceedings and we don't disagree with it, but we feel the legislator considered public policy and public concerns when they wrote the confidentiality statute to allow meaningful investigations to be conducted by the state as part of the licensure procedure for adult care homes. And it benefits all of the North Carolinians to have meaningful surveys and meaningful inspections of these nursing homes. But, but isn't that exactly where our trial courts are, are perhaps uniquely situated in order to craft uh, you know, 
careful protective orders, those sorts of things to, 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 to minimize and limit uh, the disclosure under their inherent power. And, right. you know, to you know, keep it limited and keep it within the context of this case, make sure certain, you know, uh, fraternity eyes only, those sorts of things. So, so why then wouldn't we permit our trial courts to be the ones to kind of, to, to sort of be the watchdogs over, over the, the confidentiality of this? If the legislator wanted this information to come out by court order with protective orders in place, there would have been no need to have 3A and 3B. It could have all been written in 3A to say that this information should not be disclosed unless a court of competent jurisdiction ordered disclosure. In this case, the legislator specifically broke this out. So there's A for the documentation and there's B for the name of anyone. And there's no exception in B when it comes to a court ordering the disclosure. So even if there is a protective order, the department's hands are tied by the statute and we are not able to release it. Okay, it's, I know we're sneaking up onto your rebuttal time, um, but so within the, Coming back to the, the, the investigation process itself, is, is there an administrative process in there where the, uh, uh, the facility can maybe challenge the findings of the investigation? Is there any, is any, uh, is there any like, uh, you know, remedy if the department determines that there's been sort of violations or, or what comes of the investigation itself, I guess? Yes, so okay. once a survey is conducted, the facility will receive a written up report uh, that states the deficiencies that were found based on the, the regulations that the department has. It will cite the regulation, it will cite the type of penalty that may be assessed against this facility. Before that uh, penalty is materialized, the facility has a chance to submit what's called a plan of correction. And it's essentially a sometimes handwritten depending on the size of the facility. It will be a plan, to, there's a column to the right of, of the typed up survey and it will address each violation and, and the facility has a place to say, here's what we're doing to prevent this. And I, I see we're into your rebuttal time, but. We would respectfully ask to uh, have the plain meaning of the statute written the way it is and, and to basically be allowed to not disclose the name. Thank you. Thank you. May it please the court, my name is Steve Guggenheim. I represent uh, the estate of Joseph Matthews in a wrongful death lawsuit uh, that's been filed against uh, A1A and some other defendants. We're here today uh, to discuss 131D 2.14, which uh, the state and the plaintiff uh, uh, disagree on whether this statute is clear and, un, un, and unambiguous. It's our position that the statute is clear and unambiguous and that it's very limited in its scope. It applies to disclosures made during the course 
of an investigation. The legislature could not have been any clearer in including that language in the statute. If the legislature intended for this disclosure limitation to be absolute, the legislature would not have included that language. There would have been no need to include that language in the statute. And one of the things I didn't point out in my brief, but I have highlighted in the statute, are a couple of very important points that may help the court understand why that limitation is in place as to only during the course of an investigation. And I've highlighted the sections of the statute as it relates to what the legislature said would be included in 132, the public record law. And as we note, the statute states what is exempt from disclosure under the public record law. And it says under 131D 2.14, it says all confidential and privileged information obtained under this section, which under the section is described as protected health information, and the names of persons providing such information. Well, that information is protected health information, and the legislature described that as the names of person, persons providing protected health information, not the names of persons who furnish information to the department about the facility. And then the, the, the legislature goes on in 2.14D, and the, the legislature states that all the records of the State Division of Social Services and the County Department of Social Services except information in the records that is confidential or privileged, including medical records, or that contains the names of residents or complainants. So the statute in and of itself does not even preclude from the public record the identity of the names of persons who furnish information about the facility. That is only prohibited from being disclosed during the course of an investigation, and that makes sense for the reasons that the state submitted and for what we all might understand is to protect the identity of these individuals while an investigation is ongoing. Well, I'm not sure it makes sense to me. I mean, if, if, the, if there's a whistleblower at one of these adult care facilities and the state wants to um, provide some protection for those whistleblowers, how would, it, how would it entice them to feel safe blowing that whistle if after the investigation was done, their name was out there in the public record? Uh, these are investigations required to ensure only compliance with licensure regulation. So the investigation by surveyors, and that's under 2.11, which defines the scope of these surveyors' actions, and it's limited by statute only to determine compliance with licensure regulations. And that's done, A, as part of an annual survey, 
uh, and B, in response to a complaint survey. Uh, these investigations wouldn't be done, for example, if it was a true whistleblower about Medicaid fraud or some other type of fraud, fraudulent conduct that occurred in a facility. That would be a separate investigation. These investigations are limited to the facility's compliance with licensure regulation, and the only thing the state can do in response to a violation of licensure regulations is to cite the facility for uh, what's called an A1 or A2 penalty, issue deficiencies without penalty, um, and ultimately, if deficiencies are not corrected, the state can come in and close the facility. The state's not but empowered. Isn't, isn't that something we want, uh, that the legislature wants as a matter of public policy to encourage? Is This is, this light, this inst this facility shouldn't be licensed under the state the state's licensure scheme. It's not safe. There's all kinds of dangers there for its residents. I mean, I'm not understanding the distinction between other whistleblowing elements or this complainant and licensure requirement process. We're, isn't the the reality and you want this information? I, you're, I presume your clients want this information because it's relevant to the tort you have, because it talks about some of the problems this facility had, and it, yes, it was in the context of meeting its licensure requirement, but am I wrong about that? Well, I think what we're, what we're here to do is to interpret the statute. Uh, and we have to presume that the legislature understood all of the pros and cons and all of the reasons for implementing the statute when the legislature drafted it. I mean, that's obviously the presumption is the legislature considers important issues when drafting a statute. And in this statute, the legislature was very clear in the very first sentence of the statute by limiting the scope of its application. Uh, we've seen the legislature in other statutes uh, specifically prohibit the disclosure of privilege, for example, peer review documents. In the peer review statutes, which are contained within the statutes regulating both nursing homes, for example, and hospitals, there is no peer review privilege for adult care homes. There's no peer review statute as it applies to adult care homes. But the legislature contemplated in very similar language when stating that um, peer review materials are not public record the legislature went on to state that they're not subject to discovery and civil actions. So the legislature understood there, uh, not only in the peer review statutes for nursing homes, but in the separate peer review statute for hospitals, that we need to go beyond saying that these aren't part of the public record. We need to add, oh, and it's not subject to discovery in a civil action. We don't see that language in this statute. Uh, and then when we look at, wait a second, if the legislature didn't go so far as to exclude from the public record by looking at the statute, the identity of individuals who provided information regarding a facility, how can we go so far as to prohibit the disclosure of that when it should be contained in the public record? Uh, so that, that helps us interpret this statute and, and appreciate its limitations. 
Uh, why would the legislature do that? Because they did not intend to absolutely limit the disclosure of the identity of these individuals. And we have to go one step further than that. Uh, first of all, now the court asked a number of questions and the state made a lot of comments about what surveyors do. None of that's in the record. None of it is in the record. So there's no evidence anywhere in the record that the state advises anyone that they interview that their names are to be kept confidential, either A, during the course of an inspection, uh, what that confidentiality is, what they can and can't disclose, or the fact that technically their names are part, should be part of the public record if we read the statute. So in the start of section three, any other person who's interviewed during the course of the inspection shall be immune from liability. Is that ongoing? Well, that's absolute. You can't sue someone for, say, defamation who reported information to a surveyor. Okay, but then the shall not disclose, we need to put a limitation on that. Well, if, if we read the statute, okay, well, the statute talks about, it makes some absolutes and some that are not, because the absolute, the, the, one of the things it says, and I, the, the problem is, is a statute is entitled confidentiality, but then it goes on to include a number of different things within the statute. Uh, but we're, when we're looking at the, the scope of certain things, we have to, we have to assume, we, we have to assume, but pure statutory interpretation tells us that that is true. Um, when we read the statute and it says, during the course of an investigation, then X, uh, but we couldn't apply that to, for example, the portions of the statute that talk about public records or the portion of, of a statute that talks about they can't be sued. Well, if they can't be sued, that has nothing to do with when the disclosure with made, was made. It's just an absolute. We can't condition it upon during the course of an investigation. It becomes an absolute because the way that the statute may have been poorly written. Um, the same with the public record. Um, and the same with the statute itself. Uh, and because it only limits the, the identity of persons who provide information concerning the facility. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean if a person, uh, such as the neighbor here, and you've read all, all of this, the, uh, the survey report, which identifies a neighbor, for example, who reported that the neighbor observed the resident walking in front of the road, in front of the facility. Well, is that concerning a facility? or is that concerning the resident? What does concerning a facility really mean? Is that up to the trial court to determine? Or is it up for the court to determine what that means as part of uh, its interpretation of this statute? Uh, well, there wasn't any argument made by the, in, in the record by the state that, for example, what this neighbor said concerned the facility. What if another resident uh, gives information to a safe surveyor about Mr. Matthews. Is that concerning the facility or is that just concerning Mr. Matthews, a resident? Uh, but the language of the statute says concerning a facility. 
Uh, now that could be read very broadly to basically encompass anything that possibly happens at a facility. But I thought you told me these, we were talking about licensure requirements. Well, that's the part of, that's the investigation. When, uh, when the surveyors come in, they, they, there's, a, a lar there's a large body of both statutory law and administrative law regarding the licensing of adult care homes. Uh, everything from the water temperature to the size of the rooms to the bathrooms to every aspect of the physical plant to multiple aspects of staffing uh, and cleanliness and housekeeping and training and orientation and all sorts of things. So when the state comes in and does a survey, particularly on an animal annual basis, they're going to look at all aspects of the facility to determine compliance with multiple rules and regulations and multiple licensure rules and regulations and not, for example, just the elopement of one resident. Uh, and as we can see from the survey that's part of the record, there are a number of different aspects of the facility that surveyors determined were deficient. Um, but when we look at the statute as to what supposedly can't be disclosed, it's limited. It says, uh, and again, it's our position that that limitation only exists during the course of an inspection, and it doesn't prohibit a trial court with its authority to regulate the course of, of its uh, cases on an individual basis to make, to make rules in compliance with other statutes, like the statutes relating to discovery. Uh, that's within the province of the court to make those rulings Unless the legislature says absolutely, unconditionally, you, this cannot be disclosed in, in discovery or anywhere else. But that's, this statute doesn't say that. Uh, and that was not the intent of the legislature because if the legislature didn't even want to prevent this information, it didn't even exempt this information from the public record, then how can the state come here and argue it should never be disclosed when it should be in the public record to begin with? It doesn't make sense, but what it does do is it supports the plaintiff's interpretation of the statute that it applies during the course of an investigation because once an investigation is being done, it's not until after it's concluded that the state publishes what we've seen in the public record is made available online and is subject to public record requests. But what the state didn't do there, uh, it identified people by job title, but not by name, which technically under this rule it should have done. But this isn't an issue about a public records request. This is an issue about uh, what a trial court can order the state to do in discovery. Uh, we could have a whole separate case here if someone filed a, a challenge to the state's public record release that didn't contain the identity of these individuals, we'd be arguing about, well, what does that statute mean about the public record? What should be in the public record and what shouldn't be? But we're not here for that reason. We're here uh, on, on an issue relating to a trial court's order to produce documents with a confidentiality agreement that technically didn't even need to be put in place that protects the identity of these individuals from being disclosed to the public and otherwise being used in this case. And, and what's also important to know, just for pure public policy reasons, is, is, this, is these individuals who work at a facility, um, 
will all have to be identified as persons with knowledge of relevant facts. Now, the state's basically saying, well, yeah, that's true, but you're going to have to go through because we're not required to disclose it and depose every single person that worked there to find out who it was that gave these, each of these statements to the state. The other reality is that, for example, the administrator of an adult care home who was, who was documented as providing information to DHHS surveyors is that person's name is part of the public record uh, because all licenses and license applications uh, filed with the DHSR, Division of Health Service Regulation, includes the name of the administrator. Every single year and any time the administrator's changed, the law requires an adult care home to supplement that information with the state and the state knows at any given time who the licensed administrator of a facility is, and that person's information is also subject to public record about their training and orientation and applications to become an administrator. So the reality is that these people can be discovered, um, and that fact in and of itself also supports the conclusion, well, why would the legislature absolutely prohibit the disclosure of these people's names if you can ultimately get them somewhere else. Which well, so say I disagree with your reading of the, where the plain language, the legislative history, and the articulated public policy reasons, how, how that evin evinces what the legislature intended to do vis-a-vis -vis protecting the identity of, I'm calling them whistleblowers in a non-technical sense. And I'm balancing that with um, generous discovery rules. Plaintiffs are entitled under the statute to seek discoverable relevant information. If that's, if there's a balancing there, would you agree with me that in the document you're seeking, all but one of the names are employees that, uh, employees or residents that defendants would have to produce to you in response to that motion to compel that was granted? They would have to disclose people that work there. They wouldn't be able to disclose who it was that provided this information to the state. Well, they don't know, right? They wouldn't know. Right, So they, but they can give you a list of the employees, the residents, the per personal care. Is there an argument that, that some of those you won't be able to get? What I'm getting at is I talked to Appellant's counsel about that neighbor and that being the only person that I could discern that wouldn't come out through discovery from the defendants. Do you disagree with that? Well, for example, uh, we don't know whether these are current employees, former employees. Many times the state comes in and does investigations a year after the you, fact. You can ask for a, in a discovery request, you can ask for employees from date X to date. I can ask for employees and, and there may be a hundred of them. And yes, that is correct, that ultimately I'll get the names of all the 100 or 200 employees that worked at a facility over a given period of time. Don't disagree with that at all. Well, so what's hap what now what's, what's happening is, okay, sorry, we're not gonna give you that information. We know you can get it, at least some of it, somewhere else, but we're gonna make you go take 100 depositions to find those people. Um, if, if the purpose of the statute was to protect the identity of these people, then theoretically it should be protected forever from all sources. 
Because if I'm going to ultimately find out who they are, then what's the point of the statute prohibiting disclosure ad infinitum forever? Now, during the course of an investigation, it makes sense for the reasons that I don't think we all agree with, which is let's protect the identity of these people while the state's doing an investigation. That makes sense. Uh, and we're not here to talk about that, because I agree that that's what the statute says. But isn't that really sort of maybe part of the statute, that this is a directive uh, to a state agency saying, you know, private litigation aside, you guys, you know, go for it. The state will not have a hand in, in disclosing this information, period. Just, you know, this, it, it, forget it. The state's not... The state's not going to take that take that role in private litigation. During the course of an investigation, and I agree, but the question is, is A, does the statute limit it to the course of an investigation, which it specifically says, and B, does the statute as written prohibit a trial court from ordering the production of that information? So how do we how do we square that with the, the the subsection before, which specifically speaks to the authority of a trial court to release that information? Well, I wanted to comment on that because it didn't make a whole lot of sense for the legislature to include that because well, we don't get to we don't get to, <laughs> to say right. that so. we don't we don't get to do that um, because if during the course of an investigation someone needs to get medical records, and, and as it states in the statute, that a resident can refuse to release them. Uh, well, if, if the department has something and someone needs a court order to get those, either to, to get medical records that they couldn't have gotten to respond to allegations in a complaint, then a court can order those. Well, a court could always order them under, um, it, what's, what's difficult, in the statute is that it, the statute states notwithstanding 8-53, which is a statute that's been in existence in this state for 100 years, which says that a court can order the production of protected health information. Well, it says notwithstanding that statute, a court can order it, but that's what the statute says. Is a, 8-53 says a court can order it. So it doesn't make sense why that provision is in there when the legislature specifically stated notwithstanding 8-53, which specifically allows that. Um, so it seems superfluous. Um, but the, the point of the matter is, is when we also have to balance, we have to look at the statute. The question is, does a trial court have authority to order the production of documents, even assuming that the, uh, the state's position is correct? that disregard that in the course of an investigation. This is absolute, 100%, we can't disclose this information. Well, does that mean that a trial court can't order the production of that information uh, through the, trial, the other statutes, which allow a trial court uh, to apply the statutory rules of discovery in a case, to order the production of documents, even though a statute says the state can't disclose them, well, does that absolutely prohibit a trial court from ordering the production of those documents in a civil action? Well, our position is, well, if that's what the legislature intended, then the legislature would have said that just like they did 
uh, in the peer review statutes where they specifically acknowledged that the documents can't be discovered in a civil action, which means a trial court can't order those no matter what. So the question then is, well, if that's what the legislature meant, then that's what they would have said, like they've said in other places. Uh, and I think we also have to balance the, um, the decisions of the trial court against the interests of justice uh, and also recognizing trial court's ability to implement protective orders uh, if needed to, to ensure compliance with other statutes while at the same time ensuring justice for individuals. And obviously one of the, one of the critical things that we've read from what this neighbor said is that this neighbor had observed the resident, Mr. Matthews, having eloped before uh, and walking out in front of her house, which is obviously critical information to the underlying lawsuit. And the trial court obviously agreed with that uh, and entered a protective order, recognizing the potential of releasing this information to the public and the potential harm and, and balancing that against this particular statute, which didn't prohibit on its face the trial court from releasing that information. Counsel, I'm sorry to pivot, but with your time running out, I need to ask a question about the jurisdictional defect. I understood your colleague today to argue that this was not an interlocutory order, but I read from your statement of the grounds of appellate review that you, you believe it is interlocutory. I, I didn't consider some of the issues that the state raised, and without having read the case law on the implications of, uh, or the fact that the state was a third party and they were only involved in the case because of a discovery order, whether that is technically a final ruling by the court subject to, that this is not interlocutory. So I'm not prepared to discuss that. Okay, so um, the, the state couldn't offer me a case supporting that either. My question for you is we, Parties can consent to personal jurisdiction, but not subject matter jurisdiction. So assuming that this is interlocutory, can you point me to a case that would show that an appellee can concede, consent or concede to jurisdiction where the appellant failed to do it? Uh, I, I don't know that. In fact, I was before the court a couple of months ago and the court dismissed the appeal. We had argued that there wasn't adequate evidence of uh, jurisdiction. Um, and the court sustained that, even though I kind of took this, the Switzerland position in that case and said I'm not really commenting either way, uh, and I don't know the answer to that question. So I think uh, in, in sum, uh, for, we're really looking at this A on a multitude of, re uh, of issues, and one is uh, let's see how the statute is, should be construed. Uh, and our position is, A, that the statute is limiting when it relates to disclosure as to during the course of the investigation. And even if the court doesn't agree, then the question moves on to, did the trial court have the constitutional authority to order the production of those documents under the constitutional rights of the trial court to uh, control its records and documents and to ensure that justice prevails? Uh, and so irrespective of the way that the court goes 
uh, on our interpretation of the statute. And depending on what happens, we may be back here again on a public records claim, arguing that the state has withheld this information from the public records, and it specifically states in the statute that it's not excluded or should not be excluded from the public record, and therefore does the state have to disclose it through a public records request. Um, but it's, it's really my position is that demonstrates that this information, that the statute and the intent of the legislature was not to permanently exclude this record from disclosure. Uh, and if the state wanted to really do that, it would have been much more specific in what was exempt from the public record and what was not. Uh, and it wouldn't have included the language, the precursory language that it did, limiting these uh, disclosure exemptions, exemptions to the course of an inspection. Thank you. Thank you. Ready for rebuttal. Appelli argues that the statute only applies to the investigation period. In this particular case, the investigation took six days. So from August 18 until August 23rd of 2021, the investigation was conducted at the Ark of Dunn into imply that all confidentiality and all immunity ceases with the conclusion of the investigation just does not seem like it would be the intent of the legislator when it wrote the statute. Some investigations only take one or two days and, and to have the department put procedures in place as it indicates in the statute to put procedures in place to prevent any accidental disclosure and to, to indicate that this is not part of the public record and to write the statute in its entirety to have it apply to, for one to two days or in this case for six days just does not seem would have been the intent of the legislator to, to have it only addressing that small period. We would say reads that the department is entitled to inspect records and to speak with people that are at the facility as part of their investigation. Once that information is obtained during the investigation, the department shall not disclose, therefore confidentiality attaches from that point on and it does not cease just because the survey is concluded and the department stops its investigation. We would concede that it continues on and that that information continues to stay protected. As the statute indicates, it, the surveys are part of the public record when they are redacted in the sense that there's no one named that provided information, they're just identified with a position or some other identifier. And when a police says the administrator's name is available in three other ways, Yes, but it is not available as part of this investigation and as part of being obtained in this investigation. If any of the surveys are reviewed as part of a public record request, the administrator's name would not be disclosed. Yes, it can be obtained from the actual license if someone looks at it, but it would not come from this source. The source of the investigation 
or the source is the investigation and that information is protected with the confidentiality statute. Um, for Pelvi to make his argument regarding the civil case, the department is not saying that we don't think he's entitled to this as part of his civil case. We're saying the department is not the source that can provide it and that is truly based on the confidentiality statute um, that is in place and that we have discussed at length, we would respectfully request that the plain meaning of the statute stands and that the department would not be made to disclose the names of the witnesses. Unless the court has other questions. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks again to uh, uh, both counsel for excellent arguments and, and, and good briefing on, uh, on, a, on a very complicated uh, technical issue. We very much appreciate it and appreciate your uh, time today. Uh, the case uh, will be submitted. Um, and that concludes uh, oral arguments for today. And so with that, we are ready to adjourn. <laughs>